Pleasant Good Evening Mets fans and welcome back to the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast episode 83. I am joined this week by uh, Rob Pearsall. Rob, how you doing? What's going on, buddy? How are you doing? I'm doing great. I am uh, I'm on this one with Rob this week. Uh, in case you're wondering why we do not have Sam doing the intros, uh, our friend is just a little bit under the weather. Uh, he's still doing everything that he's been doing real well in Chatham right now. Uh, he's been killing it, but just for the sake of precaution and keeping him sharp for that, uh, for that gig he's got going on, we're just giving him a little blow for the week. Nothing too crazy. He will hopefully be back uh, relatively shortly. We continue to insist that it is not a setback. Um, the MRIs were clean, all that, you know, he's doing well. But uh, yeah, Rob, good to have you on. It's been a minute. Yeah, man. I uh, was excited for this all day when you and Sam reached out to me. Um, I was always really good at celeb shots and beer pong. I got my Mike Cameron shirt on for the podcast. So I'm ready to go, man. So remembering guys early, huh? We're Always just getting that out the way. Well, <laughs> in case you're uh you you're familiar with this one, Rob's actually been on the Pleasant Good Evening podcast uh before. We had him on for episode 31. If you're interested in going back during this episode, we talked a little bit of shit about the Valley Sports uh score bug and then sort of curled into a whole dialogue about the history of SNY, score graphics, stuff like that. We ended up talking a little bit about Dyson Koo as well, which was really funny for me to go back through because literally like two episodes ago, Sam and I went through that anniversary. Um, it never gets old watching him beat up on Randy Johnson. Uh, so if you're, you know, if you're interested in giving that episode a listen, definitely feel free. It's a little bit further down in the you know, in the, uh, the queue, but it's, it's definitely worth it. Uh, Rob is also a co-host of the Real Mets Legends podcast. He has a whole uh, blog at the moment dedicated to giving you Mets news and narratives about Mets of the past and present um, and the future as well. Um, it's a great place there. You should definitely check it out. We'll give it a, uh, we'll give it a shout. Um, if you want to hear Sam confuse John Boys and John Boy Media, that's also <laughs> something that happens in episode 31. Yeah, uh, we will not let you live that down. Uh, if you know, I'm honestly, like I'll probably if Sam makes it big enough, I'll, I'll share it around a little bit, try and get him canceled. Because it is a uh, it's 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 something that I go through from time to time just for a little laugh. But um, I've, I've already canceled him, I think, for that. Like that was kind of the that was kind of the the thing, you know, I was just like, you're canceled now. Yeah. Yeah. I can understand that. He kind of, he did cross a line. It was, it's not a good look. I mean, it's a pretty important moment and, and John boys is great, but um, anyway, you didn't come here to listen to us talk about John boys. You came uh, to listen to us talk a little bit about what we've seen in the last two weeks now, because we were not around last week. Um, for those who missed it, we have basically gone through that entire stretch that we were talking about two Sundays ago. Uh, last you saw us, Eduardo Escobar and Nick Plummer had teamed up to sink the Phillies. The Mets had started off a three-game winning streak. The Phillies at this point were, what, 11 games out of first place, 10 and a half back, um, or 10 back to that point. The Mets were 15 over 500. Uh, they proceeded to take three more from the Nats, turn that winning streak into six games, um, and then they went west and played the Padres, or they played the Dodgers, then they played the Padres in, in three after the Dodgers for four. They just finished a series with the Angels, coming off a, a pretty 
impressive victory uh, on the ESPN Sunday night broadcast, if I'd say so myself. Rob, what are your takes on that uh, on that game? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that it was a pivotal game in in the grand scheme of the season for the Mets, but I think just for being able to finish that road trip, that daunting West Coast road trip, five and five with all the things that happened. And, you know, we could talk about it a little bit more right. uh, going forward, but with the, the Pete Alonzo getting hit on the hand, which happened in San Diego, Starling Marte uh, avoiding the worst of what could have been a quad injury. Um, I mean, I personally thought that both of those injuries were going to be, you, you were going to see both those guys on the shelf. Um, and for both of them to be in the lineup, tonight and contributing was a really great sign Um, because we've seen so many times in the past where the Mets are fully healthy or they're as healthy as they, they, you know, a team can be. And then they have two, like last year, it was a perfect example of how many injuries they had. So it felt like that all over again, but hopefully the baseball gods gave them a little bit of a little bit of a blessing, but uh, yeah, it was a great win on Sunday night baseball against the angels who have kind of been floundering and, uh, I think with the off day tomorrow and the Mets flying back east, uh, it was a good win. And, um, you know, the Mets are the first NL team, I think, to reach the 40-win plateau, if I'm correct. So pretty cool as well. Pretty impressive for sure. They're, yeah, they're 40-22 and 22 now. They're back to 18 games over 500. Um, after losing those two in a row from the Padres, yeah, and especially in that circumstance that you mentioned of, of those injuries happening, it reminded me a lot of Francisco Lindor, coming out of that first game against the Pirates with the oblique injury in the second half. Uh, And I think I'm not alone when I say that even as the MRIs were coming back clean, even as we were hearing that guys weren't going to be put on the IL, I think at least for me, there was still this great sense of trepidation, right? Like, because Pete's missing a game. Marte had missed, I think, three games in a row before he finally got back in the lineup today. And of course he contributed because he's done this in the past where he comes back from extended time off and, you know, and just, puts a ball in play at 105 miles per hour. And it's like, all right, he's going to be fine. Um, But there was definitely, I think, the feeling that they were uh, really going to struggle. And then the way that those two games ended too as well, especially when you stay up late for them, just not fun at all. Yeah, and I I think we forget too, because Buck Showalter really put it uh, kind of in a funny way that I feel like we all felt when they asked about playing on the West Coast, he said that, what have we been out here for a month already? And it really feels like it. I mean, they've been out there for over a week, but it feels like they've just been out there for an extended amount of time. But so much has happened on this West Coast road trip. I mean, Lindor at the first day of the trip uh, fractured the tip of his finger in that freak door injury, you know? So, um, you know, and that was, that was the same uh, road trip. And it just feels like it was so long ago. But they, um, yeah, I mean, for them to come out of it five and five, missing DeGrom, missing Scherzer, um, McGill coming back, but, you know, kind of getting his feet wet again. Um, I think that you got the best case scenario kind of outcome for that. So. Well, and also you have the fact that Max Scherzer was getting bit on the hand by a dog, right? I mean, you can't leave that one out. (laughs) Yeah. The one where it was like, all right, we're cursed. Um, I think it's interesting though, to just, I think, you know, to reflect on, just how draining this road trip was. I mean, for one thing, the off days simply did not exist. Uh, They were extremely hard to come by. I think that off day after the San Diego series was a huge, uh, it was just 
much needed with a capital M and a capital N. Um, I couldn't tell you how many games in a row they played, but it certainly was a lot. But I also think that because they do this every year where they go to the West Coast and they go there for a long time, they sort of knock all those games out in succession. They've done this before where like they go to San Francisco and then lost, you know, they play the Dodgers and then they go maybe play the Diamondbacks. Um, obviously this time they were also playing the Angels, but I mean, for me, at least I realize now that probably the reason it was so draining was because like I stayed up for these games and I usually don't, I'm usually not the kind of person who has enough faith and has enough energy uh, invested in this group of players to just be like, you know what, like this is worth watching. But um, I think especially after those two games against the Padres, which were the very familiar West coast kind of games that we've seen where you stay up till 1am and you watch your team um, go down in a heap. They weren't really hitting. They weren't really pitching. Um, I mean, Colin Holderman probably hurt himself that weekend, you know, that week too. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't all wins for them, but I think at the same time, it is a good sign that they are giving this thing, you know, something that we can look. Yeah. And the, the Holderman injury was really a bummer because he came up from the minors and just pitched so well. Um, I, I know he has the shoulder impingement, um, but hopefully he'll be back. Uh, I really liked what I saw from him. Um, but yeah, I think kind of just going off what you were saying, a couple of things you said, I think you had mentioned that they had like one day off in their last like month almost. So they were playing pretty much every single day. Um, and with, with the West coast kind of coinciding with this June swoon that Mets fans have bought into, um, those Padres games really felt like, oh, this is where kind of the bottom falls out. Uh, especially at Petco Park, where the Mets have really not had a lot of success in their in their past. I think they've only won two series there since the ballpark has opened. Um, and they've obviously had some good memories there with, with David Wright making that catch and the Bartolo home run. But overall, you know, it's kind of been, um, you know, like a, like a house of horrors for them since, since Petco Park has opened. So, um, but honestly, like with them splitting with the Dodgers and them taking two out of three from the Angels, uh, you know, that series, them losing on the road, it's it's kind of whatever. Yeah. Well, we also, I think with that Dodgers series you mentioned, I think it's interesting because Sam and I weren't able to record um, after the after the Adonis Medina game. But really, that was the kind of situation where you watch something like that happen. I mean, because they've done this time and time again, I think, at least in, in previous years where they find themselves against the wall and they have to go to the 26th guy and they struggle, you know, they lose, they blow a lead. I can probably count on, you know, at least maybe even two hands last year, the amount of times we saw like Yenzi Diaz pitching and Jake Reed pitching and in extra innings, that kind of thing sort of bit them in the ass. And this time around it didn't. And Medina really, I think, against the middle of a Dodgers order that's, that's really, really good, held it together, um, you know, and also in the wake of Seth Lugo having a, a pretty good, pretty not good, bad, pretty bad bottom of the ninth inning where he blew that save. It was, it was another situation where you think the house of cards is going to cave in, but all in all, this was, this was a pretty good trip, Rob. Um, I'm, 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 I'm pretty thrilled with this. You obviously have the discussion about how the Braves and Phillies are doing right now, because they're definitely starting to knock on the door, but if the Mets keep winning, I mean, that's usually again, going back to last year when the Braves and Phillies started winning, we were also losing this time around. It doesn't really seem to be the case. They seem to really be keeping it on course. So I'm definitely, definitely happy about that. Yeah. And I think it was expected with the Braves, uh, the Braves, especially 
uh, they weren't going to be bad all year. And I think that it's going to be a two horse race uh, till the end of the season. Um, you know, hopefully the, the Mets are getting DeGrom and Scherzer back at some point with, with which kind of seems maybe in the near future. Um, I mean, I don't know what you'd consider near, but the, the injury progress on those guys seems good. And um, hopefully they get them back maybe by uh, the all-star break, maybe a little bit before the all-star break, um, which is about a month from now. So I think that's kind of the time frame where a lot of people are looking at. Um, but the Braves are just too good of a team. They're the reigning champs and they weren't going to be under 500 for the whole year. Um, and yes, they are playing a uh, pretty easy or they did just go through a pretty easy stretch and they have a couple more series against, I think it's the Cubs and the nationals where uh, they could probably uh, trounce those teams as well. But listen, the Mets, if the Mets are good, um, they're going to have to win and they're going to have to prove that they could win. And I think that they have. So I, it's not like last year where you had Kevin Pillar and Billy McKinney and Cameron Mabin and all these other guys, um, you know, you have your Martes of the world now and, you know, Mark Canna, who's quietly putting together a pretty strong season and Escobar heating up. So um, it just feels different than it does last year, but the Braves are the team that you kind of have to uh, be careful of in your periphery. So. Well, Escobar heating up, you talk about that. We even even mentioned the fact that he hit for the cycle. Like, I feel like that's a pretty big deal. First time in 10 years that a Mets hit for a cycle. Uh, Scott Harrison being the last guy who did it in Colorado. Like, I, I feel like I remember that way more vividly than I should. But it's funny because in Escobar's case, I wasn't even up to see it. He hadn't hit. He hadn't even recorded the two hardest uh, notches of this thing until the eighth inning. At that point, with the Mets ahead as, you know, by as much as they were, I actually fell asleep. It's funny, I guess that Padre series leaves such a bad taste in my mouth because I wasn't actually awake for anything that was like really, really good. I only stayed up for people getting hurt and pitchers getting blown out and then finding out that some of these pitchers were hurt. Um, but that was that was a pretty I think that was a pretty good moment for him. And it was finally a moment that Escobar could get some sort of recognition for the tear that that he'd been on over the last month. Because he's definitely flown under the radar, I think, the way that we talk about this team, especially this offense. Um, he's, he's really been putting it together. So that was really nice. All in all, though, um, with most of the stretch out of the way and with, I think, what Sam and I had talked about a little bit in the prior uh, episode, we actually ran a poll um, with, with the fans here, with our loyal, our lovely Twitter followers. We love our, our, our Twitter followers. Please give us a follow um, if you haven't already. We're at the PGE pod. That's the PGE pod. Um, we're, we're coming up on a thousand followers, but we've been in purgatory there at like 980 for a very long time. So, uh, if you can get us over that hump, that would be great. But we ran a poll that ran a lot of results. Um, we asked fans how many games they thought they would take from what was more or less going to be, um, it was going to be a 22 game stretch. And it's not a stretch that's over yet, mind you, because we included this three game set with the Brewers that's coming up just because of how good a team the Brewers really, really are. Um, in comparison to these West Coast teams. Uh, when we came up with this poll, the Angels were a lot better than they have been now. Kind of a strange decline, but also a, a decline that when you sort of peel things back and look at everything, I think makes a lot more sense. Obviously, Joe Madden's gone now. Um, but anyway, this poll, we asked how many wins you thought the Mets would take out of 22 games. The vast majority, 59% of you guys said that they would win 12 to 14 games. They're currently at 12 wins and seven losses. Um, so they, they even have a chance to get above and get to the 15 plus, uh, column, 
which 14% of you had. I probably was a little bit more down on this team. I had them at the nine to 11 win range. I didn't think that this would be a, a, a stretch in which they crashed down to earth, but I was very convinced just because of how good these, these, these teams were that uh, the Mets were going to really come up against it, but they did. But like you said, Rob, they did come out of it. Uh, they played some good baseball. There's still 18 games over 500. 40 wins is first team to 40 wins is a really big deal. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm definitely happy about that, but yeah, I don't know how, how you had sort of forecast that in, in, you know, in your mind, but for me, at least I thought like, I mean, the Padres were very good and, you know, they turned out to be pretty good, but I probably overestimated what the angels were. They've really fallen off. I mean, we can probably talk about that after you give your thoughts on, on where this was going, but like, yeah, I don't know where you are on all of it. Yeah. So I think it was really one of those things where I was trying to take it series by series um, instead of looking at the big thing and feeling overwhelmed. Not that my thoughts on it would have mattered anyway and feel like it would have changed their outcomes, but just from a digestible standpoint on my own, uh, going into the series with the Dodgers, I think the split was, was what I was hoping for the most and anything beyond that would have just been gravy. Um, and it was kind of funny because they ended up winning the, the two games to the back end of it, which were started by, what was it? Uh, Peterson and Williams, I think. Trevor Williams. Yep. Trevor Williams. And yeah, and didn't really do himself a whole lot of favors, but the fact that they won that game, you know, you win the game, you win the game. Um, that's how yeah. I got it at least on that level. And Trevor Williams, he's a guy that uh, really stepped up to the plate in this stretch with the Mets missing Scherzer and McGill. Um, and he kind of just went out there every fifth day and did his thing. And um you know, that, that trade is still, I think, kind of uh, the jury's still out on that trade, uh, depending on what Pete Crow Armstrong becomes. That's a whole nother thing. But uh, to get Trevor Williams in that, to have him kind of still here and um, providing some help, um, you know, whether it's out of the bullpen or starting, I think is uh, has been good. But yeah, I think that split was the best I could ask for. I, I really, I was just hoping for a 500 road trip and that's what they achieved. And anything beyond that, I think would have just been icing on the cake. Um, but missing DeGrom and Scherzer, it seems quite daunting uh, going out to the West Coast. And like you said, we've seen it in the past where the Mets go out there and they just have these horror stories. And I mean, Willie Randolph got fired in, uh, you know, in Anaheim uh, at 3 a.m., you know, 10, 12 years ago. So we've seen these crazy things happen out there. Um, but yeah, when the Angels kind of started to fall apart at the seams, I felt a little bit better about that series. And then with Milwaukee coming up now with the Mets returning, they've kind of been a little bit uh, less scary in my opinion too. So, um, you know, I'm not really feeling too, too scared about them, but uh, you know, we'll see what happens. The Brewers still have a lot of talent. So. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point to make just about that team and how they're looking, but with the angels, especially like they really just turned out to be like just the 2018 Mets, you know, like just the great April. And then, you peel it back and you look at what they had. I And just the way that Joe Madden got fired, it is such a – Artie Moreno is not really uh, the best owner that is out there. He's not Peter Angelos, but, like, he's probably the next closest thing that you have to Peter Angelos. It's, 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 it's a nightmare. I couldn't imagine being an Angels fan. Uh, I just wanted to mention, just while you're on the topic of Joe Madden, uh, did you see that whole thing where he – 
shaved his his hair into a mohawk but didn't yep. get to show the team because he got fired before he could do so yeah and when he, he's 68 years old you know what i mean like he's really trying his best he's trying to relate to these kids this is more or less what he did with the tampa bay rays a few years ago like a, a long time ago actually wow i guess 2008 yeah that's 14 years ago um they all had the mohawks i just remember like evan longoria having the mohawk bj upton like you know, crafting one of his own. I think James Shields had it. That whole team was so talented, though. That was probably the best team uh, that Madden had managed to that point. I mean, the Cubs are his, you know, his his bread and butter. That's his pride and joy. But um, he did some really impressive things with the Rays. It's interesting between him and Girardi going out because they really were, I think, at one era in our lives, managers who seemed to be at the forefront. I mean, I remember Girardi winning manager of the year with the Marlins a few years before then and thinking that he might have actually or at least the league at this point thinking that he was someone who had a chance the Yankees obviously thought enough to take a flyer on him but the game has changed a lot um the Phillies getting rid of him is an indication of how much things have changed I think it's really interesting to see what they've done since Girardi's gone especially to see what the pitchers have done uh I spent pretty much this entire season on this podcast railing this team um for not playing good defense not having good pitching not being run well, not being configured well, but it's funny to see what happens when somebody just gets axed like that. And I really was of the opinion, and I think a lot of people probably were, that getting rid of Joe Girardi was sort of the scapegoat move because of how much had been done to make this team over compared to last year, right? Bringing in Schwarber, bringing in Castellanos, bringing in guys that like Corey Knable who were going to fortify that bullpen and then not actually getting the results you wanted and then gutting the manager of all things. I was confused, but looking at it now, it seems like it's given them a little jolt. I don't know how long it's going to last. I'm definitely with you on the Braves being the better team of the two, but I definitely also feel like they're definitely, the Phillies are definitely not the team that they were at the beginning of the year. And they, they probably have the chance at finishing over 500 now so I mean games are going to be different it's a good thing the Mets aren't really playing many games against them anymore at this point uh they got all the the good ones out of the way I guess yeah and I think like you said you know Girardi I'm kind of indifferent on him as a manager uh I think you know there's a lot of Mets fans a couple years ago who um really wanted Girardi uh hired and whether he would have been a good manager or not in New York, I don't know. That that Phillies team has a lot of issues. And I think that they're a team that I kind of figured was going to hover around the 500 mark um, just because they do have a lot of talented uh, hitters. Obviously, Bryce Harper and bringing Castellanos in and Schwerber has been red hot. Um, but that that team is just even worse defensively than I could have imagined. Um, and that bullpen, like every single year, is just a disaster. So just a really like overall top-heavy team um, who is going to have some really big offensive explosions of games. Uh, but they're going to have a lot of games where they lose 7-6 to six or 8-7 to seven because their bullpen's not going to be able to hold it. And really the back end of that rotation as well. I mean, um, you know, they have Aaron Nola and they have Zach Wheeler and – uh, I guess Zach Eflin to another uh, degree, but Ranger Suarez, to my knowledge, hasn't been the, the pitcher that he was in the past. Um, and I don't even know who they have rounding out that, that rotation is, is, uh, is Matt Moore still around? Is he still pitching for them? I, know I don't not, know but... if Matt Moore is still in the major leagues. <laughs> I don't know what his deal is. He seems to kick around every now and then. Uh, 
Yeah, Matt Moore. I'm trying to think of other guys that they've like tried to plug in. I mean, Vince Velasquez, they finally quit on that experiment. Um, but you look at the game logs and you look at the box scores from the last couple of games, at least like it's I think that the light has sort of switched on with the Phillies. The power is there and it's been there the last couple of games, I'd say nine or 10 games now. Um, but the pitching has really responded too. I mean, Zach Wheeler is having great games. Aaron Nola went eight innings a couple nights ago, um, which is something that I think he's always been capable of doing, but has sort of run into issues with uh, in a matter probably a little similar to like Noah Syndergaard a couple years ago, which by the way, Noah Syndergaard, we haven't even gotten a chance to talk about not pitching in that Angels Mets series. Uh, definitely, definitely put uh, Matt's Twitter in a bit of a frenzy, but just keep it to the Phillies for one second before we go into that. Um, I don't know. I, I think that at least as far as how long that pitching is going to hold up, I don't know. And I do think one thing to consider about this is Rob Thompson being the bench coach who rises into an interim position here is basically everything that Joe Girardi could want in a bench coach, which does not very, speak very well to what the Phillies are going to end up doing this season, just because you know, you didn't fire Joe Girardi just to replace him with Joe Girardi, right? Um, how long this holds up, I'm not totally sure. I'm glad the Mets don't have to face it firsthand at any point, and I'm glad that they're still winning. And I am more concerned about the Braves, uh, but I'm, I'm probably, at least for now, suspending my, my process of, I think, laughing at the Phillies to this point like I have. They're probably... They're probably on the way up a little bit. At least it seems like it's something that's that's energized them. And um, you know what's ironic too is that Jerry's Familia has probably been one of the more their more dominant relievers to this point across this stretch. He seems to just be doing his thing. But do I think that he's doing that much better because like Joe Girardi's gone? I I don't really think so. I don't think it works that way historically with teams. I mean, even when the Mets got rid of Willie Randolph, right? I mean, and that's going back a very long time, I understand, but um, that's also the last midseason firing like we can speak of. Um, it was not, I think, a result that that really changed a whole lot about where they went. They went on a winning streak under Jerry Manuel uh, in, a, I, I think, around the same time, like June, July-ish, but as far as how that held up, like the bullpen remained a bad bullpen through that year, and um, the injuries continue to happen. Um, the defense continue to have its, its, its issues. Like Jerry Manuel didn't carry that team into the playoffs. Didn't get them to the playoffs, right? Like the Braves are definitely the more legit team here, right? They have Ronald Acuna. They have Ozzy Albies. Um, you know, the pitching is, is, is getting better. And I'm scared about Mike Soroka coming back too. But as far as like where the Mets are right now, it's it's definitely a good time because it definitely doesn't seem like they're they're ready to fold yet. Yeah, and just just one more parting thought on that before we get into the whole Noah Syndergaard thing, which is um, you know very juicy. But uh, yeah, you know I, I totally agree with what you're saying. You know, and I, I it kind of sunk in a little bit more. Um, you know, as uh, you know as I've been listening to you uh, with the Phillies. Um, but yeah, I, I think that uh, that that their offense is going to be good and they're going to be dangerous. Um, but yeah, I'm glad that the Mets played them already and they beat up on them and uh, they kind of got that out of the way. They didn't have to face them during this torrid stretch. Um, but yeah, um, that, that Willie Randolph thing, I think it was like this past week or, or this upcoming week or something like it was, it was this time of year. Um, and uh 
Yeah, it's. I I didn't even think about it. Like you said, that that was that was their most recent midseason firing, and I hadn't even thought about it like that because there were times where where Mickey Calloway, I, I was certain was going to get fired midseason, and there was that whole thing with with Tim Healy and Jason Vargas and um, all that, you know, which was just nuts. But yeah, it's crazy that that Willie Randolph was the last one who got the can midseason. Right. Yeah, I think it all you know, in all likelihood. And I think the way that it really should have gone, if we're being honest, like I think Terry Collins probably should have gotten the ax when he was supposed to get the ax, like in 2014. Like I think with Wilpon run teams, there's a, an aura around, and probably there was some sort of misinterpretation around why firing Willie Randolph was so, um, you know, egregious the way that it was done. I think that Right. You and I would agree that firing him in the middle of the night was what was wrong here. Right. They'd won a game. They took three or four from a good Angels team, if my memory serves. And then they got rid of him in the middle of the night. That was what was ridiculous about it. But I think what the Wilpons ended up taking away from this was that firing a manager in the middle of the year equates to giving up when really that's not what it, it always does. Like if your manager's bad, you need to get rid of your manager, you know, like you need to change it up. Um, and they never really did that. I think probably with Terry Collins, at least they should have done that. And I know that a lot of people would push back to that because he was in the seat when they went to the World Series. Um, I think that hopefully with time, people will maybe come around to the idea that they did a lot of this stuff despite him. Um, but I also know that like he's got a place in Mets fans' hearts. He's managed the most games in Mets history. But again, like, is that really, I think, a fair assessment of whether Terry Collins was like the best manager ever. Like, of course he wasn't. I can think of at least two that were better, if not maybe like three or four. Um, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where I wouldn't open up a whole discourse about like Terry Collins right now. But I think that sometimes firing the manager when it's a situation as embarrassing as it was for the Phillies, I give them credit for understanding that a statement needed to be made because you were losing time on your season. Um, Maybe it should have just even been done at the end of last year. Uh, it was, you know, maybe to them, it was a little bit like our version of firing Chili Davis, except in that instance, they didn't really have a replacement plan. Um, and in this one, they don't really either. You know, I, like I said, Rob Thompson is not like the, the guy here. Um, so I'm not, I'm, I'm not that scared of them. Uh, Rob, I don't know if you have anything else or if you've got a few words for Noah Syndergaard here, because I think, yeah, like you said, that's a that's a juicy story that people will probably want to hear opinions on. I don't have that many strong opinions, but like, I don't know about you, but it just, you know. Well, yeah, it's one of those things where I think it it was kind of like when the Mariners played the Mets at City Field earlier this year, right, when Kellen got sent down before that series. Um, and whether there was intention or like, or if it was just a coincidence remains to be seen, you know, we'll never know. And, and in either scenario with Kalanick or Cindergard, um, I don't think Cindergard being pushed back to Tuesday while he's playing at home. Like, I, I don't think that, that it was because he was had to face the Mets on Sunday, you know, no, like they're, they're at home, you know, it's yeah. not like he was coming back to New York. Maybe at that point I'd be a little more skeptical. Um, but I think it would have it would have been fun from a uh, like a third party perspective seeing Cindergard pitching against his former team um, for that first time just because of the he has such a, a strong personality and he's very outspoken on Twitter and you know how kind of things unfolded this offseason with 
saying he wanted to return to the Mets and then not coming back and then kind of doubling down on it, you know, time and time again. Um, so it would have been, it would have been cool to see how things shook out, but I think for the Mets sake, like in a rubber game, not having that, that extra kind of um, like thing to worry about uh, was probably for the better um, kind of facing a, a neutral guy and Patrick Sandoval. Yeah. Well, I wasn't, I actually wasn't so concerned about that aspect of things as I was more so uh, the fact that he wasn't making himself available to media. Cause I, I like, I totally, I'm not at all subscribing to the notion that like Syndergaard removed himself from pitching against the Mets. I don't think that's in his personality. I don't think that's in his nature. And I also don't think that like teams conduct their business when it comes to someone like Noah Syndergaard on that sort of basis. Like if you, if you're scheduled to pitch against a team and you're Noah Syndergaard and they're paying you that much money and you're having by most measures a pretty good season, like you're going to pitch against them. Now, with that said, is it really the kind of good season that we're familiar with? Like, probably not. Um, and I am a little bit sympathetic in that regard because he's not really striking anyone out anymore. His fastball isn't what it was anymore. I don't know if that's, if it's him just reinventing things completely or if it's a, a greater response to the Tommy John surgery and the rehab sort of not going that well last season. But um, I'm probably like, I'm probably a little bit more sympathetic to him and I don't like, I think pushing the envelope or or not pushing, you know, but sort of pushing the issue is a matter of like Syndergaard having it in for anybody or having it in for the fans. I think, like you said, he just likes to start things online. Um, You know, he's starting, I mean, you define starting things though. Like he's sharing like Bigfoot gifts with Mike Puma because Puma hasn't seen him. Like, I think he's just joshing around and that's his way of doing it. I don't really have that many like hard feelings towards the guy. I like giving it back to him, I suppose, but I also think that like he's probably in his own way as a player sort of going through something and he's playing for the Angels like he's literally playing for a team that when we were talking about them playing the Mets, we thought about this like it was going to be a competitive series and then they lost 13 games in a row and completely like they're not going to compete now I mean they're basically out of contention they're not catching up with the Astros at any point, even if the rest of that division remains a sort of a wasteland, like, you know, you see what's wrong with the angels. Um, their pitching is not very good. Even in Syndergaard's case with good numbers, uh, it's, it's not sustainable really. So I don't really know. I, I'm definitely not like, I don't think he's avoiding media to, to stick it to anybody as much as he is just doing it for himself. And he kind of has a right to do that, you know? Yeah. And I kind of forgot about that aspect. Like, like that was kind of, the second thing that happened, like it was first his start being pushed back to Tuesday. And then it was, Oh, no one can find Noah Syndergaard to talk to him. Um, and the, listen, the guys played, the guy played in New York, uh, debuted in 2015 in the year where they went to the world series and, you know, went through his whole, his whole big league career, essentially up to this point with the Mets, you know, through Tommy John surgery, through coming back through becoming a free agent at the end of last year, um, so he's seen the New York media before, you know, and like you said, I mean, the, 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 the angels are not going to recover from this, uh, especially with how good the Astros are and with how good the American league East is, they're, they're not even going to sneak into a wild card spot, you know, even with the expanded playoffs, probably, you know, like I, I would be very, very surprised if they got hot again, cause they are another team that's super top heavy with a lot of flaws. And I think the 2018 Mets, is a pretty good comparison to them. 
Um, but yeah, I, I feel bad for Noah. And I, I like, like, does he get under my skin sometimes? Yes. And I think that's the point. Like that's kind of the person that he is, but I wanted him to come back. You know, I wanted, I wanted the Mets to resign him this past off season. Um, I think I'll always have a special place in my heart for a lot of those 2015 Mets. Cause that was such a magical year, you know? Um, but yeah, I think regardless, it was still a story. It was still a story that he wasn't going to pitch in the series when he was scheduled to. And then the media couldn't even find him. And, uh, but it was, it's, it's just, you know, it's kind of the way Syndergaard's personality is that all this stuff would kind of surround him, you know, like it just, it was all very fitting, I think. So regardless if it was making mountains out of molehills or not. Right. And I think the real no hitter discourse probably like was the, 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 the appetizer, you know, for all of this, I think that if we don't have to, fight him on Twitter over that. Like we're probably just chilling a little bit more, but also I think Met fans probably like, like if Marcus Stroman ends up pitching at city field, like they're going to have it in for him. They're going to boo him. Like it took them a very long time to get over Matt Harvey before they could actually, I think like show him some kind of respect when he came back to city field as an Oriole, you know, like I think that for fans, there's always this sense that it's honestly a little bit of an entitlement where when players leave, it's like, well, why wouldn't you want to play for us? But if you're Noah Syndergaard, like you get hurt, the team kind of botches your rehab and then you get outbid. Um, and I, if you, if you recall correctly, like the Mets didn't really offer him, they didn't give him, he gave them time to counter the angels offer and they just didn't. And they didn't even let him know that they were going to, which is why he signed with them. Right. I mean, these things always have nuance to them. Uh, and I usually tend to side with players on these matters because organizations have a way of running their teams that puts profits and winning ahead of, uh, you know, players' feelings and agents' feelings. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not like, I'm definitely not that bent out of shape about it. Um, so it's, it's whatever. And it's done, right? They had a good series. Um, they get to go back home. We finally get to watch games at 7 p.m. again, you know, like Jesus, that, that was taken forever, um, you know, for us to finally get to that. So I think that now we can kind of just like return to normal in some, in some respects. So. My last uh, parting thought kind of on the West coast trip is the Mets did face Aaron loop um, who pitched amazing for them last year. Um, and Disha Thosar uh, had a story about loop uh, this weekend and I just wanted to ask you, I think, yeah. with with someone like Chase and Shreve struggling now, um, would, do you think that Billy Epler calls up his old franchise in L.A. and tries to inquire about someone like Loop, who clearly has a soft spot for New York and really enjoyed pitching here and wanted to come back, but kind of like Syndergaard, because they signed around the same time, couldn't really wait forever, but with uh, – the Mets knowing what Loop can be and what he was last year and with them kind of needing a lefty, because I don't think Chase and Shreve is going to stick around truthfully. Do you think that he's a guy that the Mets could possibly bring back um, with the Angels kind of falling out of contention? Well, that's, that's sort of a tricky situation, I think, because of Loop's contract. Um, I think the Mets have made a pretty firm statement this offseason that they're not going to be paying guys for more than at least like for more than two years of service. And they're not going to be going North of like, you know, six or 7 million annually for a guy. And Luke wanted more than that. And he was entitled to more than that after the season that he had. But I feel like the Mets are going to be more likely to sort of 
look for someone who gets DFA'd who who has potential, or maybe they call up the Rays and swing up a deal with someone who clearly has the tools to be a good pitcher. And maybe you get gouged a little bit because it's the Rays, but you now have like, you know, uh, I mean, I'm trying to think of an example that the Rays might have right now. Um, maybe like, I don't know, maybe they don't trade Jeffrey Springs. I mean, the Rays probably aren't doing a whole lot of selling right now, which is the other thing. Like if you're making trades this early on, you're probably going to need to pay a lot more because there's no other competition. Uh, there's no other real situation in which, you know, these teams have any incentive to deal, uh, to deal their arms, to deal their active players. And the angels are also probably, I think, under the assumption that they're still going to contend and they're still going to try. I don't think it's over to them. I think to most people who get it, it is over. And this is sort of, it feeds into that process that the angels have been repeating every year. Like they just never develop their pitchers, you know, and they, they come out with these great hitters, but like, maybe they can't really field, or maybe they aren't really, I think like adjusted to, 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 you know, velocity. Like we've seen this with Joe Adele to this point, right. Um, they they seem to have a strategy of just signing guys and hoping that they'll continue to, you know, to produce at the clip that they were producing at when they became free agents. They did this with Archie Bradley, obviously on a much greater scale. They did this with Anthony Rendon. Um, it's, it's sort of, it's an interesting strategy and they get it right. Sometimes like Jared Walsh is a great player. Uh, we don't need to talk about how great Shohei Otani is. I think we both agree that he's, he's very talented, but uh, I don't think the angels really are going to be dealing anyone right now. Uh, but I don't know it, as far as who they're going to bring in. It's a good question because of Holderman getting hurt. It's a good question because of how inconsistent Joely Rodriguez has been as a lefty. I mean, we talk about Shreve. Shreve's probably, I mean, last we spoke, Sam and I, we talked about the guy basically being unusable and it hasn't changed a whole lot. Like he's just having a huge home run problem right now. The, the splitter isn't doing what it usually does. Um, and the fastball on its own was just never a pitch that really could thrive. Um, like the strikeouts are going down too. He's sort of following like that, that Drew Gagneau track that, you know, where it just goes from watchable to like, shouldn't be here. So they should definitely talk options as far as who they have. Like, I don't really know who it is. Like we talked Holderman and Nagosik when those guys were both in AAA, um, you know, and like Trevor May and Sean Reed Foley were the guys who were getting hurt. And like, those became the two guys, but Nagosik just got optioned um Holderman we don't know how long he's going to be out impingements are bad though like there's no timetable right now um and they're not going to rush him because of his age and because of how quickly they threw him into the fire but like is Eric Orzi going to be the next guy they like how good would, would would Tommy Hunter be at this point if he purchased his contract like I don't think I think it's something that like in a lot of ways is also going to fall on the starting pitchers it's going to fall on guys like Chris Bassett to just have better games. I mean, Taiwan Walker and Trevor Williams are two guys like Trevor Williams did this last Sunday against the Dodgers having a great game. And, and today was Taiwan Walker just registering 10 strikeouts, you know, like these guys have to have good games and make this thing sustainable or at least feasible to the point where you're not bringing in more than two relievers after the fact. Um, today they went to, let's see, they went to Lugo, um, for this eighth or no, they went to him for the seventh and then the eighth, and then they took Diaz for the eighth and ninth. So they made it work. Um, 
I think that that's sort of what they're relying on right now, more so than than going for relievers. But it does raise an interesting question because guys might become available, you know. Yeah, and I think, you know, Eric Orze is a guy who you probably will see at some point this year. I know that they uh, the the Mets just promoted recently um, Bryce Montez de Oca and um, Michael Otanez to AAA. And those are guys that throw absolute gas. So, you know, I think they'll probably be up at some point this year, but um, it's one of those things where how much, how much pressure are you putting on these young guys that are, you know, I mean, Holderman really responded to them throwing him into the fire, but um you know, they probably will have to go get a veteran at some point. It's super early. Um, I guess with the loop thing, I meant more so like like at the deadline, perhaps if the Angels are, are selling. Um, but yeah, I think you're right about the starting pitching. It's like they need to do a better job of of essentially staying in ball games and and limiting the amount of of runs that that they're surrendering. And obviously, that sounds dumb to say, but it's you know, since Scherzer's gone down, their, their rotation's not been very good. Um, you know, and Taiwan Walker, when he pitched uh, against the, the Angels in the series finale, uh, he started out, he looked terrible. I mean, uh, that first inning, they were all over him, the Angels. And then he came back out for the second and just completely dominated from there on out. So, um, and Walker's kind of a guy too, where um, when everyone's healthy, he probably gets bounced from the rotation. Um, but you really need your Chris Bassett's and your Carlos Carrasco's right now to anchor this rotation until Jacob DeGrom and Max Scherzer come back. And, and you mentioned the fact that Scherzer and DeGrom are sort of on a similar track, and they really are. I mean, it's sort of getting to a point where we're now looking at them as sort of two in the same as far as dead, deadline acquisitions go. Um, DeGrom's going to be throwing his third. He threw his third bullpen on Saturday. He's going to be progressing to live batters. It's probably a slower track for him to this point because they're doing this very gradually, right? Like he's not going to go immediately, I would imagine, from live batters right into rehabs. Whereas Max Scherzer, who's been throwing his side sessions and is also slated to throw live batting practice on Monday, might be more likely to do that just because it's an oblique injury and it's a sudden thing that he's dealing with now rather than an injury that dates back as far as a year. Um, you know, the oblique is probably, as far as we know right now, like less likely to be something that shelves him the whole year. But when Jacob deGrom's case, it's, it's, it's turning a little bit as far as the timetable goes, it has turned a little bit into the cesspitous heel uh, injury a while ago. Like I just think about that as far as how delicately the team should have taken it in that case um, and how much longer, uh, you know, the recovery and ramp up process ended up taking because of how indelicately they handled it. I mean, really, honestly speaking, last season in DeGrom's case, I think that the Mets probably rushed him a little bit. First off, they took a little bit too long to realize that he was dealing with something bad because at that point he was compensating in other areas to deal with that elbow injury that he'd sustained. And that's what probably contributed to the shoulder problem, right? Like it was mismanagement that led to a long timetable. Now, fortunately at this point, at least right now, I can probably say this season, they're doing a good job with Jacob DeGrom. They're really, I think, making sure that that every egg is is in the right basket i guess they're making sure that everything is where it needs to be they're crossing t's dotting i's not starting him on anything until imaging is clear checking him on checking him on imaging every time that they can 
Uh, so that's sort of something that in his case, I'm more confident about, but it is still gonna take a while. And it's gonna take the, the rotation a while in their absence uh, for, you know, for guys to get it right and for guys to really come out again. Because really Bassett and Carrasco on this West Coast trip, they were not very good. Um, I'm not worried about either of them. I think they'll be fine. They're both smart pitchers and they're both pitchers who have been around a while and they're clearly both healthy. Um, but like, you know, if we get into the postseason and we suddenly still don't have DeGrom and Scherzer and like we're going Bassett Carrasco against the Giants or against the Padres, like, I don't know. I mean, it is something that I do worry about just a little bit. Um, and it's something that hopefully will sort of correct itself because in Taiwan Walker's case, and even I, I'd say to David, in David Peterson's case to this point, like these guys are starting to come around, they're starting to rebound, and you are at least getting somebody who is doing their job every five days um, in twos or in threes. Um, and that's been a real, I think, breath of fresh air for them. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's sort of where I am on the pitching. Uh, it's also good for them that they're going to be on just a consistent schedule. You know what I mean? Like they had their East coast games and then they have their West coast games. And now from here on out, like they only have three games now that are going to start after 8 PM. And only one of them is even starting after 9 PM. And that's a game in Oakland, which like the A's lost 10 in a row coming into today. It's the Oakland athletics. Like you can handle that. That's totally fine. Um, so I don't know. I'm definitely, not as worried about them I'd say as far as like I think the offense is just going to continue doing its thing you'll always have someone who's doing their job like Jeff McNeil Pete Alonzo even if it even if like Lindor is having a bad June like Eduardo Escobar and Starling Marte are having good Junes so it sort of evens itself out um I'd say like I'm probably most worried about the bullpen um but I'm really most worried about the bullpen when the starting rotation isn't doing what it needs to do. I just trust the rotation more, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that I think that um, the Mets know that the bullpen is an issue. You know, they're not going to just sit on their hands and not do anything to address it. Um, and I think that last year they kind of recognized that that it wasn't a team that 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 was was gonna continue that hot stretch that they got off to in the beginning of the year um especially with all the injuries but um i mean getting javi Baez was kind of one of those things where well you know if the meds do make a, a a run at it you know they're gonna have an experienced hitter but they didn't go all out at the trade deadline at all i mean they didn't all they got was trevor williams and javi Baez this year yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah hang on hang on they got rich hill they got rich. oh you're yeah, right they did they did get Rich Hill. I totally that, forgot about that. No, but Rob, that 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 didn't do anything. Like, let's be no. honest. You remember Rich? I don't remember Rich Hill. I well, do. that's the thing. I, I totally just forgot about him. <laughs> he got three innings, four innings every start. Like it was it was torture watching him. And I love Rich Hill, and I hope he's doing well in Boston. And I was stoked. I was stoked when they got him. But like, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't that good. But no, you, it was think, it was like a band aid. It was just like it was like a band-aid but it wasn't even a band-aid brand band-aid it was like a bandage that you would yeah. get um but you know i think it's going to be different this year and i think that the the, the front office knows that they have to upgrade this bullpen um because it's gotten to the point where unless you're edwin diaz coming out to pitch you know i'm kind of sitting on the edge of my seat 
um, kind of waiting for it to blow up. And, and the Mets did have some games this, this road trip where they completely blew up. Um, yes, they took two out of three from, from the Angels, but that middle game yesterday, they let up, what, 11 runs? And then those last two games in San Diego, you know, they, they got completely torched. So, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But uh, I agree with you. I think that I worry about the bullpen, but, you know, the bullpen too, like, is probably going to benefit from – the starting rotation doing their job, which they have not done since Scherzer went down, which was almost, which was almost a month ago now. So. Right. Yeah. And, and it's hard to think it's weird to think that it's already been a month, but I guess like, I mean, we've been having fun, right. I mean, maybe it's just a time flying in that case. I mean, it's probably, if we're looking at this as far as like which injury lines up with things going, you know, getting slower, I think it's the Travis Jankowski injury where things kind of line up, you know what I mean? And like, I don't know, man, I, I, I miss Travis Jankowski. I didn't even, we don't even get updates on him now. Like, I don't know where he is. I, well, we do know where he hey, is. Hey man, listen, he just met Shaquille O'Neal. He, he just met Shaquille O'Neal. He's met Shakira and Shaquille and Shaquille O'Neal. That's kind and of James strange McCann. the way that's, <laughs> yep. James McCann did too, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I wonder what Jank is, what Jank has been doing. Uh, I hope he comes back at some point. Things are definitely in the roster at large. I mean, we didn't even talk about Dom Smith getting option. I mean, he's just not in the fold right now. And who knows when that's even going to change? Because the first guy they called back when Alonzo and Marte got hurt wasn't Dom Smith. It was Khalil Lee, uh, who hit his first homer on Saturday, which was cool. I didn't see it. I was sleeping. I don't think anyone stayed up after Jake Reed gave up his homers. Like, I think that we all called it a night, but I'm happy for Khalil Lee because he also, right. I mean, he's responded well to his sort of journey through the minor leagues this season in particular, right. He started in Syracuse. They sent him to St. Lucie as a bit of really a disciplinary measure with him. It was sort of to shake him awake. He came back to Syracuse hit well. And I think he probably earned that call up. Dom's also hitting well in Syracuse though. It just seems to be a situation in his case where the Mets really want to give him an extended play to get his power back and to get his mind right before anything else. But he's homered twice already. He's about 40 at-bats deep in Syracuse, and he's already homered more than he has since July of last year. You know, like he seems to be getting some of his footing back, and that that does make me happy. Um, as far as where he fits in, it's still sort of up in the air, but uh, I don't know. I, I started this on a funny note with Jank, but definitely in Dom Smith's case, we're dealing with a situation where, um, you know, another guy who's struggling that you do root for to, to figure it out and put it together. I think that in an ideal scenario, you have Dom Smith come up um, later this year in a really crucial at bat, um, a la Kirk Neuenheis, uh, in 2015, you know, and just have a really big at bat and, and kind of, you know, just that, that magic of, oh, you know, everyone's contributing and Dom Smith is back from the minors and this is a magical season. Um, realistically though, it's like, I don't know what his path back to the majors is at this point. You know, I mean, I don't even know if we'll see him in the majors as a Met again. Um, you know, they did almost trade him this off season, um, he's been kind of on the chopping block now for a couple years, uh, kind of on and off. And it's a shame because I think that Dom is well-liked among his teammates and among the fan base too. Um, so I think everyone's kind of rooting for him to, to, uh, to get it together. 
And it is sad to see that he did get sent out to AAA. And, you know, I hope that I'm wrong and I hope that he does come up again this year and kind of contribute in a positive way. Um, but I, I just can't help but wonder if, if Dom Smith's days as a New York Met in the major leagues um, are over. Um, and I do just want to mention as a quick note that Robinson Cano wearing a SpongeBob uniform in his first uh, game as a, as a, as a triple A, uh, uh, El Paso Chihuahuas, they wore the SpongeBob uniforms last night, his first game since 05 in the minors, that wasn't rehab and he's wearing a SpongeBob uniform out there. So, well, life comes at you really, really fast, doesn't it? Right. Like you just go one day, you're on a team that honestly looks like they're the real deal and you're you know, you're there, right? You're a veteran presence. You're a guy that people like having around. Um, whether you're contributing or not, you're you're probably doing pretty doing pretty well. And then just the next the next moment, you're in a SpongeBob uniform. You're working at the Krusty Krab. Like, dude, just I don't know. I that's another person who I definitely hope like gets a little bit of just even if it's just a moment at this point. I think that it would be well deserved just because this is pretty much the worst way you can go out as a major leaguer after all that time is to just fall so far down the ropes that, you know, you get released. Like even Matt Carpenter um, has gotten his moment. And that's been, I mean, that has been really cool, right? Six homers in his first 10 games as a Yankee. I wanted the Mets to get him. I think a couple people uh, who'd been following his, his numbers in the Rangers minor league affiliate, you know, their AAA affiliate probably felt the same way about him, but whether or not the Mets have room for him is, is definitely up for debate. I'm happy to see that he's doing well, but you like to see veterans who have, I think, a real place with one team. In this case for Cano, it's probably the Yankees, but he was a guy who, when he came to the Mets, looked like he could still re record like even 3000 hits. He was probably on a hall of fame track before the whole, you know, before the, PED suspensions and now he's he's probably staring down the, the barrel of what will be his, the end of his career um it's a little bit of a shame that he's in the Padres system right now because they're a team that can't really afford to just give at bats to someone who doesn't have it anymore but hopefully some team gives him like the Bobby Abreu treatment or something because I'd love it if um if he could just have a, a last game have some sort of role somewhere um to bring it back to Dom, I guess, because uh, I think that that's sort of, you know, to talk a little bit more at length about where he's going to go uh, as a Met. I don't think he's going to get traded. I just don't think his value is very high at this point. Uh, it was already fairly low when we were talking Chris Paddock, Eric Hosmer, Emilio Pagan. Now it's, it's he had a bad, he's been bad, right? Like the op, first of all, Dom Smith being optioned was a little bit of an inevitability. He wasn't getting a path to playing time anyway, because everyone around him was hitting better than he was. And he was hitting below the Mendoza line. He needed not only to get reps, but he needed to do it where he could actually contribute because it wasn't happening at the big league level. And I think it should have happened. Um, but it's great to see that he's at least taking it in stride, taking it upon himself to get better because when you've been in an organization as long as Dom has, and you've gone as long as he has without being optioned, without really being cast aside like that, um, it can be jarring and it can be difficult to make that adjustment again and fight your way back. Um, I really want to see him make it back. 
it's probably always as a Met going to be in like a Kirk Neuenheis role to this point, just as someone who comes off the bench, um, whether it's to play first base, you know, to spell Pete Alonso on defense, or if it's to just bat for a righty in a, you know, in a righty righty matchup, like that's what he needs to do now. But I think he's setting himself up with the numbers he's put up thus far in Syracuse and with the power that he's displayed, especially, I think he's doing his part to actually get ready to contribute the way that he needs to with this team. It is, of course, sobering that it's going to be happening in a manner very different from what we saw, for instance, in 2020 or even 2019, because I think the 2019 group uh, being a little bit less stacked than it was, at least offensively, right? Like even Nimmo missing so much of his time that year with that neck injury, like Smith got a lot more playing time then. And he obviously got a lot more playing time in 2020 um, because Cespedes opted out, right? Like he had roles with those teams, even though they weren't that good. It's always difficult when you have to sort of move on from somebody once you finally like achieved your success as a group. Um, but for in Dom's case, the, it, I don't think it's a total move on. I think he can come back and I think he can contribute in that role because I don't think that that spot is going to belong to, you know, Khalil Lee much longer, even if Nick Plummer sticks around, even if Nick Plummer ends up being the guy that gets the playing time that like Dom was supposed to get. I think if Dom continues to hit this well in Syracuse, he's probably a better asset to this roster alongside Plummer than like Jankowski is. And I like Jank, but, and I love Jank, but like Dom does, you know, if Dom's doing what he's supposed to, he's probably going to be giving you more than, than he does. Yeah, I mean, you, you make a great point, and I think that um, I think that he is someone who, hopefully, this is a this is a beneficial thing for him from a perspective of maybe he needed to get his head clear or whatever, and maybe he did need to get those regular reps or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm rooting for Dom. I, I really, I like him a lot. You know, he's my mom's favorite player. I have a soft spot for him. I think the rest of these guys do too. Um, but yeah, you make a lot of really great points, man. You know, so um, I hope he's back. And even if it's not in like a starting capacity, like, like having him be there, to help contribute to this bunch, I think is like what the ideal scenario in my mind would be for Dom. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's definitely, I think that's, that's the way to look at it. I mean, hopefully he's not there too long because you also run the risk of somebody sort of doing their part to show you that they're good enough to come back and then sort of, you know, going, not going cold, right? Like I think Dom could probably keep up his production triple A if he wanted to, but just, you know, losing the the initiative and losing the the willingness to really stay engaged with a team that at that point would probably communicate much more clearly that they don't want you like if Dom doesn't get called up in like two months I wonder how much of a you know of a wake up or a a a good thing it becomes to have him in triple a right like he's somebody that probably needs to go that down there for a blow and then once he has it right he comes back and he has it um of course when you're in a situation that the Mets are in, right. And you're trying to make the playoffs, you're trying to really like keep the best record in the national league right now, you can't be, you know, you can't be thinking about how you're going to accommodate someone who won't even be playing that often. Uh, But I hope for Dom's sake. And I think for this fan base's sake that he gets to have a role uh, because he's a great dude. It's funny. It's just like, 
um, when Alonzo got hit by that pitch from Darvish uh, 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 earlier this week in, in San Diego, I, I was like, I was, I think everyone thought that Alonzo had a broken hand and he was going to be out for, you know, six to eight weeks. And in my mind, I was just like, this is Dom Smith's like, like, this is a perfect opportunity for him to shine, but this is also like his last opportunity. Like if Alonzo was going to be on the shelf for six to eight weeks, I was like, this is make or break for Dom. Cause like who else are you going to give reps to like on an, on an extended amount of time? Um, not JD Davis, not JD Davis. Not JD and Davis. Not Mark that Hanna, was terrible. You know? Never again yeah. with JD Davis at first. So it was like, you have no other options than for it to be Dom. So it was like, it was this interesting thing where it's like, I hope Alonzo's not hurt. But if he is, it's like, this is, this is something that's like, we have to watch. Like this is the make or break thing for, for Smith. It's like, he's going to get an extended amount of time to play every day and it's, he's either going to sink or swim. So that was kind of my, my, uh, I meant to mention that earlier and I forgot, but yeah, that was kind of something that, that had been contemplated. Thankfully, Alonzo is healthy, uh, but hopefully Smith gets another chance. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, really talking about those injuries again for a moment. I mean, looking at where things were on like Tuesday and Wednesday, right. When the, when they were pretty much getting whacked by the Padres um, it, it, that was probably, I'd say like the low point of that trip. Uh, But things, you know, things did pick up. I don't know if it was like, I don't know what in particular it was. Maybe it was just the off day, right? Like maybe it was, like seeing Shaq, maybe it was Marte coming back into the lineup. Like, I, I, I don't know. Maybe it was David Wright being there. Like it, it could be any number of things that turned it around. But I think that really to this point, we've had a couple moments now. It happened in San Francisco when they had two bad games in a row. It happened the first two bad losses of the season where we think maybe this team is, I mean, when we saw with Scherzer getting hurt too, right? Like when you really get tested like that and you're wondering whether this team is, finally going to regress or come back to earth but you look at where they are now like 62 games into a season um this is historically one of the best starts that they've had and we're slowly whittling away at like the teams that have gotten off to a good start like this right like sam and i we've periodically been looking at this team in comparison to other teams through the first 30 games through the first 45 games now through the first 60 games and it is starting to get like very eerily similar to a good baseball team it's starting to look more and more like a chiseled out really solid group of players that's capable of going deep in October through 60 games the top five Mets records are 1986 at 44 and 16 and the Mets at their point through 60 games being 39 and 21 Uh, that is the second best record the only other team that's better than them is the best Mets team in team history. And then if you want to look at three and four, it's 1988, uh, the, one of the only other Mets teams that won 100 games, um, and 2006, which by most accounts would be the best Mets team, uh, you know, through the best regular season Mets team I've ever watched. And I've said that a number of times, but it's, you know, a team that dominated all year and never looked bad. Like, that's where this year's group is at. Um, and that's really exciting, I think. And it's something to get really excited about going forward with this group. Especially when you consider that it's, they're not even doing this at full capacity. And I think that's kind of like 
maybe a loaded statement, right? Because every team deals with adversity to a degree, right? Like Matt Carpenter getting this opportunity with the Yankees, like, like, you know, that next man up mentality is something that each team has to deal with at a certain point in the season. So I don't know if teams are ever like really like at full, full strength, but like, I think when you look at like what they can be and like with Scherzer and DeGrom on the horizon and hopefully they stay healthy, but like there's that. And then there's also like that they're, you know, that they're going to make moves at the deadline to bring even more talent into this already talented team. And I think it's like, like we're really seeing the tip of the iceberg with this group of players. And it really just does have that feeling of, you know, we've seen a lot of bad teams the last five or six years. Since since the Mets were last in the playoffs in 2016, there's been a lot of really bad Mets teams. And there's been some really, like, like 2017, 2018, like, those Mets teams were just flat out bad, and they were boring. Like, they were not even exciting to watch. You know, yeah. this Mets team is. And and I think it's impressive what they're doing, despite, like, like, with that adversity. It's kind of just like – they're absorbing the punches and they're able to, to just go out there every single night and believe in themselves and not get down on themselves. And uh, I, I think the best is yet to come. And maybe that's just my, my optimistic Mets brain talking, but um, I think that like, I don't know, I'm excited for what the rest of the season is going to bring. I think it's going to be a special summer and a special, uh, a special fall. Yeah. Well, the hardest part, at least, as far as I was concerned, is is definitely past them now. I mean, this road trip was going to be, even when it's not necessarily against teams that are competing, like it just brings the ugliest out of the experience because you're up till 1 a.m. You're watching bullpens that are also up till 1 a.m. pitching badly. Um, I'm trying to remember who it was. Was it Starling Marte earlier in the week who during a Padres game just like sat down on the field while there was a pitching change happening. It might not have been Marte. Do you know what, what, who I'm talking about? I don't. The, the, the tough thing sure with some of Marte. these, yeah, the tough thing with some of these games is that like I caught most of them, but then there was a lot that I didn't just because of like the, the lateness, but yeah, man, I mean, like they're jet lagged, dude. Yeah. They're tired. They, they yeah. want to go home. And the of fact course. that they're winning games right now, despite all of that is really, really convincing. Uh, mm-hmm. That's sort of my piece on it and this team. We did want to issue a mailbag um, yeah. because I did bring up David Wright uh, coming with the team. I mean, not really coming with the team because like he's not coming to old timers game, old timers day. Like this isn't really, I think, like a, a David Wright still being in the organization, visiting and, and stuff like that. It was more so just him living in California and wanting to see the team. But it seemed like a lot of fun. Fans got to see him again or meet him and. I've, I've never gotten to meet the guy. It seems like a great experience. I'm sure that that's something that he has to go through, like whenever he shows his face in public, just because he's David Wright. But um, yeah, I don't know. It, it got me thinking a little bit. And it's it's a question that we haven't really asked people. We haven't asked fans and we haven't done the mailbag in a while either. So it seems like the perfect time to just ask people to do this. So if you're listening to this and we'll put this on Twitter too, if you're not, you know, people aren't listening to this, we'll get this. This open for everybody, and we're going to be reading as many answers as we can, and we're going to be picking the most wholesome ones. We're going to be picking the best ones. It doesn't have to be a great player. It doesn't have to be, you know, at any one time, uh, at any one event. It can literally just be bumping into a player, seeing them at a restaurant, anything like that, and getting to meet a fan. We want to hear a little bit about your favorite experiences meeting 
a New York Met. Um, Sam and I will share ours next week. Rob, now that you are here, if you have any that you can just speak of or speak to, um, just give people a sense of what they should be, uh, what the assignment would look like here. Uh, you know, you'd be our first submission. Do you have anything? Yeah, sure. So I live in Westchester County, so right outside the city. And uh, growing up um, at Westchester County Center, they always had baseball card shows like sporadically throughout the year. And uh, there was always a ton of really great autograph guests and tables set up selling cards and other merchandise memorabilia. And uh, my dad used to take me all the time. And, uh, you know, it was always fun to see who was going to be the autograph guest. But so I'll tell you, like, just like a two parter. The first part is um, we met Ty Wigginton. Uh, this was probably uh -huh. like in 2003 or 2004. Uh, and the picture that we brought for Ty Wigginton to sign was a picture that my dad had taken of him uh, while we were at a game. So it was like a developed, like, like this from a disposable camera picture uh, just from like our seats at Shea stadium. Uh, and I remember it was like, it was like a back-to-back, -back, it was like a, just like a uh, uh, one single admission, uh, no hitter game where the Mets got like dominated by the Mariners, but we have like a ton of pictures from that game and Ty Wigginton signed that photo. Mm -hmm. But I remember, uh, as like I was leaving after I shook his hand, I go, uh, say hello to Jose Reyes for me. I was like, oh, yeah. Um, and so that was the first one. The second one was at that same Westchester County Center uh, several years later. Um, I forget what Met was supposed to be there to sign autographs, but they couldn't make it. So Pedro Feliciano was sent instead. Mm. And it was like a Sunday afternoon. I think the Mets were playing Sunday night baseball that night. So he was there and there was not a single person online to meet him. And I remember me and my mom like walked right up and uh, met him, shook his hand. He signed my baseball. Um, just a really nice guy. But it was just like, yeah, he, I guess he was there last minute. No one knew he was going to be there. We walked right up. He signed the baseball for me. And uh, I'm glad I got to have that experience because, you know, Pedro Feliciano passed away, unfortunately. So I'm happy I got to meet him. But yeah. those are those are a couple of my uh, my stories for meeting past players. And uh, I'm glad they're kind of uh, the guys that they were. Yeah. yeah, that's I never knew that about Pedro Feliciano. I mean, we've shared so many stories about just games that we've been to, the two of us and like people, mm -hmm. players we met. I never knew that, though. That's really sweet. And obviously, you know, all the more heartfelt, you know, heartfelt and, and emotional, just considering the fact mm -hmm. that he did pass away last year, RIP, rest, yeah. in, rest in peace, rest in perpetuity, perpetual. <laughs> yeah. That's so sweet though. And he would like, he would show up to something like that. Um, yeah. He was a great so, guy. Yeah. Uh, that's funny too, about Wigginton though, just giving the, you know, the say hello to insert far more important player for me yeah. like, that he probably got that all the time at that point although he was very good Wigginton like, he was he was really he was, good he kind of got I mean he was it's a shame that he wasn't met like in the time period that he wasn't met because he basically was just keeping the seat warm for David Wright yeah. uh they had to get rid of him to make room for Wright they put they could have honestly like moved him to first base Mm -hmm. David Wright because like Todd Zeal was just kind of sitting there but I mean if they do that do they get Carlos Delgado like probably yeah. not. it's it's a butterfly effect mm -hmm. uh I mean Wigginton ended up having a, a fine career not a good career kind of the Mike Jacobs career you know maybe a little better than Mike Jacobs because Jacobs yeah. didn't stick around that long but mm -hmm. um 
Yeah, Wigginson was with Pittsburgh and the Cardinals. He had like a he probably played in the, the bigs for over 10 years. Yeah. I think I he was with the Marlins. He played for like the Phillies at one point and he like gave Josh Tolley a concussion, I think. Like he hung <laughs> around for a bit of a while. Like yeah, he was playing for some teams. Uh mm-hmm. and they still make players like Ty Wigginton, you know, like they make, you know, there's Darren Ruff, there's there's you know, um I'm trying to think of an Angels comp. The Angels are so weird, though, right? Like, Matt, there's no one like Matt Duffy on that team. They still have Juan Lagares playing. They put Tyler yeah. Wade in center field. Like, yeah, they have, they have, they have a lot of those. I mean, they have like, um, I'm trying to think. There was, I think it was on this West Coast road trip. Like, there was someone that was, that was playing where I was like, I can't believe this person's still around. Um, well, Kurt Suzuki with the Angels. Kurt Suzuki, That's another guy. Yeah, absolutely. He's batting seventh. It's like, what are they, you know, like, yep. I mean, I know the Mets have Tomas Nito in the lineup every day, but like, yeah, Kurt Suzuki playing every day is kind of. I didn't even know he was still around. Yeah. I, I really had no idea that he was even still active. I enjoyed when I didn't know that he was active just because yeah, of same. a couple years ago uh, to the Mets. But, you know, yes. they still make guys like Wigginson. I mean, honestly, Wilmer Flores. Yeah, one Flores is kind of Wigginton with the power. Yeah. I mean, just right-handed hitters who can't really feel, but if you stick them at first base, you can maybe make it work. Um, you know, there's something nice. There's something nice about those kind of veterans, right? Where it's mm-hmm. like you might forget that they're still active. They bounce around between teams, like they're not. They might spend two years tops of the same team, but they're kind of bouncing around. But they always have jobs, right? Um, you know, and I think you see it a lot with like relief pitchers too. Uh, you know, someone like Latroy Hawkins, I think about who was with the Mets oh, several man. years ago. He played for every team, mm-hmm. uh, but he always had a job. There's always a need for those kind of veteran players, you know, um, especially on teams that are um, maybe younger teams that need that veteran leadership or teams that are kind of just trying to uh, put a warm body out there. But mm-hmm. there is something nice about that journeyman type player that I think is like that the heart and soul of what baseball is and, and has been for so many years, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, before we remember too many guys, I guess this is a good segue for us to just remember our guys here. Rob, do you have a, who's the guy you got? I'll let you go first as our guest. Sure. Yeah. So he was a Met for a very brief time period, but Andy Phillips, Andy Phillips is my guy. He was a Met? Yeah, for like a, a second, like for like a split second, but he was. He, I think he he played with them for like three games at the end of his career, but he was there. Oh, man. Yeah, that's another like Yankee dude too. Yep. You know, like mm-hmm. just played a while with the Yankees, didn't really do much. And then like, I mean, I guess, yeah, the cop now would be like Clint Frazier, right? As far as, I mean, the Cubs just DFA'd him. Um, yeah, Just someone that should have been kind of good with the Yankees. I mean, Phillips, it was difficult because he was like, he was a contemporary to like Jason Giambi, right? Like he's a he was like a bit, he was like a power bat. Yeah, he was like a power bat. Like I think Mike Jacobs is probably a good like comparison to Andy Phillips, truthfully. Like guys that had the power, but like had very obvious flaws in their game, you know? Yeah. Yeah, or maybe like Luke Voigt now. Although yeah, Luke Voigt. I think Voigt probably, Voigt and Jacobs probably had more power than Phillips showed. Like I remember Phillips being like, one of those first basemen who like he had power, but like for a first baseman, it was like eh power. But James Loney. Yeah, maybe James Loney. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's another guy. Jeez. James Loney. Who's your guy? First base. Oh, my guy. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you asked. Um, well, I was thinking about cycles. 
Um, we talked Scott Harrison. That would be too easy. I went through the archives and looked at a couple cycles that have been hit in baseball history. And I'm pretty sure that the Mets have the guy with the lowest career war to ever hit for a cycle. And that's Eric Valent. Ooh, Eric Not Valent. Not it for the cycle. I never watched Eric Valent play. But yep. He had a negative 0.8 R war. Negative 0.8. I'm going to just refresh it so that I get this right. But he literally was not in the league for more than like a year after he hit for the cycle uh yeah, I he, he was, was a regular player when he did this he just kind of came up off the bench as like their fifth outfielder one day and just did it yeah negative i remember nine, that game negative point that, nine r war um, that was in montreal i remember that game i was like career homers and they all came in one season 2004 yep yeah, Never he was really played anywhere after the Mets either. Like when once they, you know, waived him or or whatever it was, he was that was it for him. But uh dude hit for a cycle. He's in the yep. books, you know. Mm-hmm. So, I remember that game, man. Like that was in Montreal at Olympic Stadium. And he also walked that game as well. Like he hit for the cycle. I think he went five for five with a walk. Like I think he had two singles, a double, a triple home run, and he walked that game. That's, I mean, that's got to be, you got to have, I think, some sort of way of commemorating people who hit for the cycle, but also add something else to it because, like, it's already hard enough to register the four hits and four at bats. Some guys don't even get four at bats in a game, yep. right? Like, like, to get a walk on top of it. And Valent wasn't like, I'm looking at his, his B ref page right now, and like, I don't think he walked a whole lot either. He wasn't necessarily like, Cause he didn't really have much power, but he wasn't an, un- I guess he was just like a defensive asset that they had. Right. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know what else to make of his stat page. It's really like, I mean, it's even the game totals. He played 130 games in 2004 with the Mets, but wow. only 300 played appearances, which again tells you maybe defensive sub or something, right. Not getting yeah. a lot of time. Um, pinched hit. He probably pinched hit a lot. Pinch hitting. No, he yeah. wouldn't. No, you're right, because then he, he only had 300 plate appearances, so he probably wasn't getting a majority of pinch hits, you know? Right. Or I guess he well, could. I don't know. He had an OPS yeah. plus of 111 that year. But if you mm. look around it, after two, that, well, before 2004, he had played two years with the Phillies, but a combined 29 games across those two years. And then in 2003, he played 18 games for the Reds. And he his combined OPS plus across those three years was literally – nine it was a nine ops plus like he was not a good player uh and after his cycle year with the mets uh he played 28 games in 05 and he batted 186 uh yeah 307 career on base percentage a 300 on base in 2005 like they they you know they outrighted him or something they released him i don't know what but like that was it for him i guess signing beltron probably you know, made him a little bit less important to the team, which, you know, makes sense. Um, that was a weird year, man, because that was before that was like sandwiched between it was like one of those weird years sandwiched between 2000 when they went to the World Series. Oh, one where they were still decent, but like fell short. And then it was like, oh, two, they had like that one last ditch effort. Yeah. to compete with like all those it was essentially like the worst team money could buy like part two you know with roger Cedeno and mo vaughn and roberto alomar mm-hmm. um 
you know, and then 0304, it was kind of this like weird in-between period. So it was like you had a lot of guys like Valent where they were probably just like trying to throw, you know, crap against the wall and hoping that something would stick. Yeah. Um, but it's funny that you mentioned how bad he was because I think I was so young when that happened and him hitting for the cycle. Like, I think in my mind, I always kind of just assumed that he was like a decent player, right. but I didn't realize he was that bad. Well, when they play, you think that they're good enough to play, you know? That's really yeah. what it what it's like when you're rooting for bad teams at that age. Like, I was fortunate because for me, it all started in 06. So literally, like, their worst everyday player was, like, Jose Valentin, who, yep. who slugged, like, you know, who had an OPS, like, over 800 anyway, you know? Like, mm-hmm. that team was so good, and I was so spoiled. But, um, you know, it, it comes to you. You eventually – even this will pass, unfortunately. But um, – you know, we're enjoying it now. I don't yeah. know. I don't know really what else to to do with an Eric Valent here, except note that he hit for the cycle, just like Eduardo Escobar. So they might yeah. be the same player, you know, they might be very, they, they might be, you know, Eric Valent might just be, <laughs> you know, he's part of Mets history, man. You know, everyone will remember him. I, I mean, I'm sure most people remember him for that moment. So, yeah. Yeah, he definitely comes up, at least in the broadcast booth. And every yeah. now and then, like, it's got to be that sort of situation. Anyway. Yeah, totally. I don't have much to add. Rob, any final thoughts on this uh, on this pleasant good evening? No, thanks for having me on. I'm glad I could, uh, you know, I'm glad I could contribute. You know, you guys are awesome, and uh, you got a good thing going with the podcast. So I was ha- I'm happy to be a guest co-host for the, for the day. Mm-hmm. Well, we now go into a pleasant good morning. It is 12.08 Eastern time. Uh, That's going to be a good place, I think, to put a pin in it. Uh, In case you want to know a little bit about where this team's going next, they have Monday off, Tuesday night at 7.10. Chris Bassett and his now 4.35 ERA will be taking the hill against Adrian Hauser and the Brewers. That's a three-game set, followed by Bassett. They'll have David Peterson pitching, not Trevor Williams. It will be David Peterson and then Thursday at 7:10, we got a Tyler McGill matchup against Aaron Ashby, a lefty who throws very hard. You might want to take a look at that one. There will be a lot of below. Following that, we have a weekend series against the Marlins. Carlos Carrasco is scheduled for Friday. Saturday looks to be Taiwan Walker. Sunday, it's anyone's guess, TBD. But for all those listening and all those subscribed and all those across Twitter and everywhere, thank you so much for bearing with us this week. We hope to have Sam back next week. He appreciates all your well wishes. I've been Jack Hendon. He's been Rob Pearsall. This has been episode 83, a pleasant good episode. And Mets fans, have a pleasant good evening.